0: Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. This episode of Studs features a conversation with a guy I've had the pleasure of knowing since the day I was born. Scott Robin divulges why he's the go-to guy for solving some of the Internet's most unique and vexing problems. And as a web developer, he talks about how he wants to see the web develop. You'll appreciate his vision. Tune in. Enjoy my conversation with my boy, Scott Robin. Scott Robin, you are literally my favorite person in the world to talk to and to learn from. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I have, with great interest, I must say, watched your career evolve. In my mind's eye, you're the perfect marriage of Mr. Wolf from Reservoir Dogs and Wormser from Revenge of the Nerds. Indeed, my friend, my working title for your biography is Scott Robin, Between Wormser and the Wolf, the Revenge of My Favorite Nerd. Scotty, welcome to the podcast. It might not be easy, but I got a question for you. How do you describe what you do for a living? I'm
1: Dan Lazar's favorite person, of course. <laughs> hey <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't resist. I am a web developer. That's what I say. Uh, more succinctly, I tell people I make websites. An underwhelming description of myself. But I... I I sort of sit somewhere in between uh, somebody that designs websites. I'm not a designer. I'm not a software engineer that can do uh, great technological feats that allow people to travel with a high degree of precision to outer space. I'm a person that understands how to get things on the internet. And I've done that for the last 13 years.
0: You have, for the last 13 years, engaged in a broad array Of endeavors. Your portfolio is actually quite impressive, if nothing else, for the sheer number of different types of things you've done, uh, which actually says a lot about you. But just to get a sense for the breadth of your endeavors, can you walk me through some of the highlights of your project portfolio?
1: I think I I break it apart into three different phases. Um, When I first got started, I was lucky enough to partner up with somebody in Chicago in a co-working space, and we created a site called Songza, which was an online music search engine before there was really such a thing as music search engines, at least before Spotify was in the U.S. That was fun, exciting, novel time. I spent uh, probably another five years working with a friend of mine in San Francisco for startups out there, working on sites for Twitter and Mozilla and Adobe and YouTube, And then, probably for the past six years or so, I've been working with a variety of clients in Chicago, but the most fun and exciting has been Cards Against Humanity, the card company, doing most of their their stunts and promotions and e-commerce stuff.
0: Stunts, indeed. I'm aware of some of these. Can you talk a little bit about what your role is in developing the Cards Against Humanity stunt game? The stunts.
1: I'd love to take claim for any of the funny stuff, but as I was describing, I'm the, the least funny person at that company. <laughs> they, they have, you know, really bright and, and funny and intelligent people there that come up with the ideas of what to do and then they bring it to a handful of us for execution. They'll, they'll say something like, we have bought an island that we're going to give to, you know, we're going to, to give a small parcel to 150,000 people. Can you figure out how to take a plot of land and divide it into one square foot per person and give them their coordinates, their latitude and longitude. And then I'll say, sure, that's a strange request, but that sounds fun. And I'll go off for you know a couple of weeks and kind of figure it out and come back with a spreadsheet full of latitudes and longitudes that they can then use to print certificates for people.
0: So, Scotty, there are 8 billion people on the planet. Yeah. And the moneyed folks over at Cards Against Humanity chose you among those 8 billion to find a way to parcel out an island. Why you? What do you bring? What's your skill set? Why are they interested in you to do this? Uh,
1: I, I don't think I have any particular skill set. I'm actually sure there are people that that do surveying for a living that could have probably done it better, uh, <laughs> more efficiently. I, I think that that you develop a certain amount of, of trust, a trust relationship with people where... Uh, somebody needs to depend on you for some reason, or they need to get something done. And you sort of, you know, determine if it's something you think you can do, or you think you can learn to do in the amount of time that they need. Uh, That latter half being the most important, giving yourself time to learn to do things. And you get stuff done. And over time, they've come to see that, you know, when I say that I can get something done in a certain amount of time, they can trust me to do it. Right. And that's like a that's a pretty special relationship for groups of people to have. And so it sort of starts snowballing, you know, it started off building a a simple website for them, an e-commerce platform, and then a holiday promotion and then parceling out land or
0: didn't they have some crazy project where they, they bought a castle in was it was it Scotland? Where what 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 was the story?
1: Yes, it was it was in Ireland. It was for one of the holiday promotions. Uh, the idea was that they would give everybody the ability to be king for a day, king of the castle. And so they bought <laughs> a half-dilapidated castle in <laughs> Ireland. They bought this thing, and, and the original idea was that they would, they would uh, install a speaker into the castle. And, you know, throughout a year, you'd get a time slot. Yours would be, you know... August 28th from 1 to 3, you know, 1 to 2 p.m. or something, you could just make proclamations. There would be a speaker at the castle and they would you could bellow out your decrees and nobody would be there to listen to you, you know, save for a few insects, but you could do it, feel really great and it'd be broadcast over the internet so people could watch your decrees. But it turns out that getting, you know, solid internet to a castle in the middle of nowhere in Ireland is is not the easiest thing to do. What ended up happening was sort of you have this idea and you want to execute it and some of the execution details get in the way. There's a sort of secondary creative process to say, well, how can we still service this idea we have in a different way? You know, we we're sort of coming up with different ways to do things. And the, the, what ended up happening was instead of you having this live feed of the castle, they sent somebody out there with a drone and some really nice uh, video equipment to do some beautiful photography of the place. And we ended up creating a website that had a sort of constant loop of these beautiful images of the castle. And then uh, one of those CNN style sort of scrolling tickers at the bottom, and you were still given a slot of time where you could make your decrees. I think you could make three decrees and you could choose your name, uh, your royal name. And at a certain time of day across that ticker, you would see your decrees and it would loop. I think it's, I think it's actually still up. And, and going right now is just like you know you're just constantly like king for ten minutes or three minutes or whatever it was. Sort of going back to the idea of why we work together, or why we like working together is you're under an enormous amount of pressure to build something that has to be done on a certain date, and the dates can't really slide, you know. Because I think they was for Christmas, right? And you can't you can't push the promotion past Christmas, you know. And and as these as your sort of original idea starts eroding you have to sort of be on your toes to say, well, I think we can do this or I can't do this or I put all this work into this one thing that we can't use anymore. Let's just switch gears and try to like get it done and get this other thing done. It really takes a, a big trust network to just say, all right, this is still going to work out. You know, we're, we're still going to be able to get something done and something that we're proud of.
0: You bring a trustworthiness because you're willing to get the job done. You seem to be able to listen to people and to help them to fulfill their vision. But if I can just behoove you for a moment to box up your humility, why is it, and if I'm pushing too hard, tell me, why is it they come to you? What is the skill set that you bring to these particular types of high-pressure challenges?
1: I don't think I bring any particular like technical skill set to these. I mean, a little bit, right? Like, I know how to make a website or I know a particular language, but I'm not, you know, when I see the uh, sort of spectrum of people that, that do this sort of programming, I'm not a very good programmer. There's people that are far better at it, who who have better technical skills and chops. I think that what I bring is just dependability. You know, it's, it's amazing how far that can get you in life is just, being a person that's dependable. And sometimes that's dependable, like I can get this thing done for you in this amount of time for this amount of money. But uh, more often than not, it's the person who also says, I'm sorry, I don't think that the goals you have right now are realistic. I think you'd have to sort of change this or that. And it's a hard conversation to have. It's a very like direct, frank conversation to have, but I think it goes to dependability because you're ultimately you want this thing to succeed and if you sort of detect that something's not going to succeed, you have to sort of speak up early rather than just being like, well, I don't, I don't know, let's just you know, change it later or give them the news later on that it's not going to be done on time.
0: You had mentioned previously that you played a, a central role in starting Songza. It was you and you and one other guy.
1: Yeah, uh, a- Aza. Aza. Aza, yeah! I, I'll, 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 let, I'll let you guess which one of us it was named after.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um, can you tell me the story of Songza?
1: It was not uh, far, long after I quit my last real job and went freelance. Uh, shared an office space with you know about eight people in a sort of industrial corridor in Chicago, and half of the office was uh, Asa and his friends from college who were building software like more they called it hum- more humane software, more usable software for computers. He's also one of these guys who just has the magic touch. He just, he understands what people want and, and what they need. And he came to me one day with a sort of side project he'd been working on where he said, I sort of developed this thing that lets you uh, search for music on the internet, any any music you want. And the trick is it searches YouTube. And uh, if you close your eyes and you don't look at the videos, turns out that YouTube is, is one of the best sources of music anywhere. And these are in the days before Spotify and before iTunes uh, music. So it's a very novel idea. We built this thing up and it quickly went from, you know, nothing to like 20 million page views a month. It was just the two of us running it. And we were courted by investors and VCs and we were flying out to California and New York. You know, I was pretty sure that I was like a month away from getting my teeth gold capped. <laughs> it just seems like the greatest thing in the world. And, you know, in, in the end, it turns out that building something on top of, uh, you know, YouTube and, and you know, trying to make that your source of music and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a really great combination. <laughs> from a perspective of people enjoying to use it, it was incredible. It was a big learning experience for me in terms of business and how to run a website um, with that sort of traffic.
0: It was, a great, it was a great experience. Was it thrilling to watch it blow up?
1: Yes. It was just crazy because it, it became this thing sort of outside of ourselves where it was in a movie. Those, those guys, the Catfish guys from MTV made a movie called Catfish. And the, part of the central plot of the movie is they use Songza. I think Justin Bieber tweeted about it at one point in time. It was, it was very strange. Uh, and, the, and 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 I think this sort of goes to you know part of the other conversation we we're having. Like the underlying code was garbage. <laughs> it's just like a, it was you know objectively garbage. Um, but it served its purpose.
0: So from Songza to Cards Against Humanity, uh, which are maybe like two of the bookends here. Oh. Uh, you've had so many projects that you've been juggling in between, and even during your work on Songza and your work for Cards. In fact, you seem to juggle several intense projects at any given time. Can you run through in in one minute or less as many as many different projects that you've worked on in the last last decade as you can?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's dozens of them. I mean, there's probably or hundreds. I don't know. It, it, there, there, a lot of them were just marketing sites. You know, those are probably some of the less interesting ones. Probably a dozen of my own side projects. You know, open government type things that I've done. Uh, most of these things failed, never made me money. These marketing stunts for cards that live for a day, most of them last anywhere from one to three months, I usually have at least two of them going at a time, sometimes three. Uh, there's a bit of a juggle and sort of the context switching that happens.
0: So everyone's trying to juggle different responsibilities whether they're different professional responsibilities or their personal and professional responsibilities uh, most people i know are trying to juggle being a parent with being a professional with having a social life right we're all trying to juggle but your juggling perspicacity is second to few can you walk me through some of your successes and failures in in, in juggling has it ever gone all cattywampus? Have the wheels ever fallen off the bus?
1: Uh, yeah, the wheels are always a little shaky. Yeah. My favorite sort of times in working is when I've got a job that is due in a month and I know it needs to be done and there aren't really many meetings and I have the faith of the person I'm working for and they say, "Just let's just talk in a month. So, and I can just work at my own pace. I know what I need to get done. I can parcel out things day by day or week by week. And slowly solve problems until at the end, you know, most if not all the problems are solved. And in between that time, I can do what I want. I can take a bike ride, you know, play guitar, knowing that I'm still like managing that time well. I guess one of the hardest parts of working for yourself is you're never really sure which one of your prospects are going to come through. I'm t- constantly talking to people, and some, you know, and it's 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 very understandable. You know, they're trying to juggle their own schedules, and so they say, "I really want to do this thing." you know, and I want to do it next month. So I clear my schedule for next month and then it doesn't happen for four more months. Or sometimes funding falls through on their side or they find somebody else to work with. I'm constantly hedging this bet of like, will I be employed next month? Will I have things to do? And when it works well, it's like, yeah, it, they say it's going to happen and it happens. When it doesn't work well is when I've got to kind of do this airline thing of overbooking, you know, seats. Right. And all of a sudden, like everybody says yes. And I'm like, oh, shit. I, now I've got three things to do and I don't have time to do them all. And so I'll have to work nights and weekends or I'll have to try to delay one of those jobs a little bit, which can affect your relationship with them. When the wheels fall off the bus is when I'm trying to manage too many things at once.
0: What are the types of projects that you seem to get most excited about these days? It's always
1: this like balancing act of saying, I want to learn this new thing, right? I'm curious about expanding my own skill set. Is this the job that will let me do it? Can I learn on the job? And so somebody will say, you know, I want to work work with this particular piece of software. And then somebody comes along and they're like, hey, I need to do this thing. I'm like, you know what you really need to work with is this particular (laughs) piece of software. Um, And it's, it's, it's a really delicate balance between like, you're, you are over promising but you're not over promising so much that you're in hot water you're just saying I'm gonna need a little bit extra time to learn this thing and I feel confident that I can learn this thing and execute it well but like I'm gonna be learning it as I'm getting paid to do it huh. and, and for the most part that's worked out well but those are my most my, my most favorite jobs where I get to learn something new you know conversely the most the least exciting jobs are the ones where it's just like you know, I could really use the work right now. And I'll just do this thing, even though it teaches me nothing new or I might not be excited about the subject matter of this. It's just good income.
0: At this point in your career, about what percentage of your work week is devoted to jobs that you take to pay the bills versus what percentage are labors of
1: love? Trying not to offend any of my current clients. You know, I I think that it's been a little while since I've had some really exciting stuff. They come along you know, a couple times a year where you're just like, oh, that's a, I'm really excited about this project. Oftentimes in life, you plateau and you're kind of you're kind of moving along. You don't feel that sort of rise and excitement and ascendancy of, of new knowledge. The same thing happens with work where I'll go through times where I'm just kind of doing the same thing and then all of a sudden, something new will hit and everything becomes fresh and interesting again. And I've done this long enough that I understand... That when things plateau is actually a time to get excited because it means pretty soon things are going to become really fun. So I kind of feel that way now.
0: I, I love the way you look at that. It's a really good time to strive to be optimistic. Let me ask you, if you could focus on any one type of project. If you were given the opportunity to take a deep dive for the next, say, 12 to 24 months into a project at the expense of all your other projects... What project would you commit yourself to and, and why, why that one?: I have a couple
1: of like side projects right now that I've been working on, and they're all kind of focused around the same theme. I, it's not the actual project itself that I'm necessarily interested in, but I think this, this sort of theme excites me now. It's the idea that we've sort of built the, this like huge network to be able to share with like everybody all the time. You know It's just this sort of onslaught of sharing. And I think that what interests me right now, what I'd love to work on for a while, is sort of dialing that back a bit and getting to more you know intimate sharing with small groups of people infrequently,
0: mm.
1: you know, which is sort of kind of going against the tide. there's a group of people who are also interested in this too, but you know it's sort of anti Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. What if you just shared with a few people every now
0: and then? like narrow casting.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard the term, but that's a good way to describe it. I always use an analogy of like a butcher. There's a butcher down the street from me. The butcher operates a shop and has customers. And if they play it right, they can sort of have this business going and great relationships for their entire lives. But they're not opening a second shop, you know, in a neighboring town. They're not looking to make a sort of U.S.-wide or worldwide conglomerate of butcher shops. They're just sort of carving out a small piece of business and making, making it good, making it sustainable. And I feel like the internet has sort of like encouraged people to do the, the sort of opposite of that. It's just like, well, you can reach everybody, so you should reach everybody. People can share while you're sleeping. You could be making money while you're sleeping, so you should. Yeah. Like is there room for that, you know, alternative, a website that can cater to a small number of people or encourage small groups of people to just communicate every now and then? Can you have a sustainable business that way?
0: And in your mind's eye are these people who share like a particular interest, like people who are into racquetball or people who are into knitting?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that that's that's also part of it is The larger the network, the more um, diluted it has to be, right? Because you you never really know who your audience is. Anytime you post something to the internet, you're thinking about who your, your audience is. You're sort of imagining these personas. Are they your students? Are they your family? Are they your friends? Are you trying to be like funny with them? And what happens like when you want to sort of switch gears and show a different side of yourself? You know, where do you go? Do you go to a different network? Do you create a different persona for yourself? But if you have these sort of small focused groups of sharing, you know, you can have many of them. It's okay to have many of them. It's also okay to have things that that come and go, right? That are seasonal. Like why couldn't you have a a social network that just lasted a small amount of time and then went away? It'd be really interesting to explore those ideas.
0: That's a really interesting problem that you are seeming to want to create and solve in the same brushstroke. You have a really unique approach to problem solving. I don't know anyone who sees problems like you do. Are you aware that you have a kind of unique way of looking at problems?
1: Uh, it's very kind of you to say. I think you need to get out more.
0: Oh, I didn't say you, you had a wise approach to problem solving. I didn't say it was good. I said <laughs> no, just, I said it, it was it was unique.
1: Just, well, thank you for the backhanded compliment. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I think that I think that's very kind of you to say, but I, I think I have just you know just like everybody else has. You just kind of have a perspective you come at things from and probably like a philosophy on things that you just like won't let go that you keep sort of hitting that hammer year after year and the nails look different, but you're just kind of hitting, you know, hitting with the same hammer.
0: I kind of want to ask you to describe your, your hammer, but I'm going to do it in a, in a sideways sort of way. Again, you loosely call yourself a web developer. How do you want to develop the web or how do you want to see the web developing?
1: Selfishly, I would like to just see it or at least see myself like developing it in a way that allows me to be curious for the next, you know, thirty years. Is that what you're giving yourself? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a that's a pretty good amount
0: of time. Seventy four is good.
1: <laughs> I'm tapping out after that.
0: <laughs> so stay curious for the next thirty, huh?
1: You and know, I have talked about this a little about the sort of change in what it means to be conservative. And I think this relates to sort of the evolving ideas behind conservatism. Like, I, sometimes I look back at sort of the nostalgia of the early internet, and I want some of that to be restored. And I don't know if that makes me progressive or conservative. You know, I think what I would like for the internet right now, what I miss about some of the internet, I miss the like diversity of you know publishers that were out there. When people themselves are making websites, enthusiasts or or small trades groups or things like that, where you really found yourself on somebody's like corner of the web. And now when you mean you know, anytime you search for something, like you're gonna end up at one of the 20 to 30 largest websites out there, inevitably. You're gonna end up back on YouTube or back on you know, Stack Overflow or any of these like sites. And and they're great. They're great sites, but like I think it comes at a it comes at a cost. I'd like to see people self-publish more outside of Facebook, whether that's on blogs or however they can get the content out there. But, uh, you know, I'd like to go back to seeing less general collections of, of information. And I don't know if that, that may me conservative or it may be just sort of what I'm hoping brings a more vibrant web about.
0: That's uh, that's ambitious and exciting, and if anyone can make that happen, I'm sure it's you. I want to go from that big, broad, almost ideological ambition you have for the development of the interwebs towards something really granular in trying to solve all of these problems and develop the web in the direction that you want to see it develop. What is your Workday look like
1: my day is very com- compartmentalized, usually by like what clients need. So I'll set uh, you know a, c- a certain amount of time aside to do a particular task. I think probably you know one of my least favorable qualities is um, I'm not very good with transitions, and so I have to find good stopping points throughout the day. I have to have a good stopping point for lunch or I have to have a good stopping point by the end of the day. Otherwise, I'll just kind of like careen off and keep thinking about a problem or obsess about it, which doesn't work well for like interacting with other people. So I'm very careful about planning out what I'm going to try to accomplish during a day. And then sprinkle throughout the day. One of my favorite things that I've been doing for probably the last like five years is I have an instrument, a guitar, you know, within reaching distance of my desk. It probably harkens back to the days when I was a smoker. I just need to take short breaks to kind of context switch. So I'll sit down and play for a few minutes and then get back up and work a little more and sit down again and play a little more. Um, Usually it's very like routine stuff. It's like practicing the same thing over and over and over again. The repetition is sort of comforting.
0: It's a type of meditation that brings you out of a certain headspace. It creates for some different type of thinking. That's very wise of you, young man.
1: Well, it's just better than smoking, I guess.
0: Yeah, (laughs) marginally better than smoking. (laughs) You know, Scott, you were talking a couple of minutes ago about the challenge you face in transitioning from one task to another and how that creates some stress for you. But I'm wondering, is there uh, another skill or aptitude that you hope to focus on for the next couple of years? You know, obviously,
1: I'd like to work on on making my transitions more smooth, but there's like a there's like, there's like a converse side to that, right? Like the the better I get at transitions, I worry that I'll become worse at focusing. You know, I'll lose my focus. My focus is one of my best skills, and so I worry like if I get better at at, at transitions, am I going to lose some of these skills? So I think you know, I'd hope to sort of hone some of those things and improve myself, but still maintain my mojo.
0: Yeah. Well, look, if I can be so bold, allow me to make a simple recommendation. You should probably take up smoking. I hear it works wonders. (laughs) So one of the facets of your professional life that we didn't have a chance to dig into, but it's one of those things that, like it or not, important to what you do, and you have to transition in and out of it all the time, I imagine, is your role as an entrepreneur. How do you describe your approach to business? You know, pricing and billing and investing You have to think about it. So what are your thoughts?
1: I'm terrible at it. Uh, (laughs) Frankly, just awful. I mean, if you look at it on a long timeline, I've been, uh, you know, I started off 13 years ago as a one-person company and 13 years later, I'm a one-person company. (laughs) Like, how good could I be? It's really interesting. I've got a a couple of people who are sort of one-person business friends. You know, we get lunch and we talk and everybody's very... Very candid about sharing information about how they price you know how they you know run contracts how they operate accounting wise and so there's a really open network of people who are willing to share this information that you don't get when you're working at a company we have nobody else to go to um, so most of my billing and accounting i I can really attribute to the shared knowledge of of those folks.
0: It seems like you have despite working alone a lot of the time a really vast and fascinating network of colleagues if i can call them that you seem always deeply interested in other people's experiences it's it has always seemed to me that curiosity is at the core of your approach to your work and your success in your work in being so curious who are the the thinkers that really inspire you, Scott Robin. Who who is etched in stone on your professional Mount Rushmore?
1: Uh, well, first and foremost, Mr. Dan Lazar. Oh, jeez. You know who inspires me. You know, it's not people. There's, you know, it's not a monument. Eat, eat the monuments. <laughs> the only reason I have this career right now is because thousands of people who I don't remember their names shared some small piece of information on the internet that helped me learn a little bit. Or get me through a project, or get me, you know, to the next level of something. You know, I, I don't know how you create a monument to that. Mm. I think those people have been much more valuable than any one particular person.
0: You called out and named me, so I'm not going to push further. <laughs> so, you know, just to show that flattery will indeed get you everywhere. Mm. Um, I'm not going to push you towards Lawrence Lessig at all.
1: Not even a close second. Not even a close second. You're <laughs> you're far ahead, Lawrence Lessig. Who I bowled next to one time in Boston. That's another story, though.
0: Wait, you bowled next to Larry Lessig?
1: Yeah, I was in a, I was there visiting my in-laws, and we were bowling at one of these places that has like really tiny bowling balls, like bocce size bowling balls and pins. Anyways, it's weird. They call it candlestick bowling. It's not real bowling. But oh, yeah. uh, I looked over, and the lane next to me was was uh, Lawrence Lessig and his family, and then I just like. About 20 minutes later, I tweeted, I can't believe I was bowling next to Lawrence Lessig, and he replied with an exclamation point. <laughs> That's my brush of fame.
0: I love that story. I can't believe I don't know that story. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't share it with you. Huh. Well, you know I love stories, so I'm going to have to ask you for two of them right now. Yeah. We like to wrap up this podcast by hearing stories of a professional triumph and a professional failure, Why don't you start with a failure so that you could end with triumph?
1: Yes. Uh, The failure is uh, I spent two years after uh, I left Cards Against Humanity building a content management system called Vapid. Uh, I worked on it relentlessly and built it, and then nobody used it.
0: (laughs) Huh.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the way it is, right? Like Some things hit, some things don't the things that I spend no time at all on do well and the things that I spend my, you know, every waking moment on just flop like a dud.
0: Well, I would like to urge all 17 listeners of this podcast to go do- download. Do you download vapid? I don't even know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't even worry. It's, it's done. It's, it's cooked. Is it Thank really?
0: Is it over? No, nah,
1: it will, it will be, it will be soon. All
0: right. Yeah. Sorry to hear it, man. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, RIP vapid. yeah. Uh, do you think if you named it something else?
1: Yeah, that could have been it that could have been <laughs> my first mistake.
0: <laughs> uh, live and learn. Yeah. All right, so give me give me a, a triumph. Where did you where did you nail it?
1: I, I was really interested in the open government uh, a while ago and and we'd all get together at these meetups. Uh, we, this is technology built to help people interface with government better. We were all just complaining that there was no real way to get it information, that you had to kind of steal it and fight the government to, to get access to it. And then when, uh, when Rahm Emanuel became the mayor of Chicago, he installed some of the people who were our friends to be part of his technological staff. And they immediately said, you know, step number one is we're going to release data. We're going to create a portal for you to access data. And one of the, the uh, folks who did this was uh, my friend Brett, who said, we released this data portal to anybody who'd like to just build something on top of it? And I was like, yeah, oh, that's great. So I spent the weekend building like three small little things that were just throwaway projects. One of which was a site called wasmycartoad.com. And you would just put your license plate in and it would hit the database and say, yep, it is. And here's where your car is. Or nope, you didn't get towed. Somebody probably stole it. You know, <laughs> uh, And it was like, it was one of those things like, right? Like it wasn't my two-year project. It was my, I'll work on it for, you know, an hour on a Saturday. And that thing had, you know, was more successful than most anything that I've done. It helped them highlight what a government data could do. Fun project for me. It got me introduced to a whole bunch of people. It was good.
0: That's cool, man. Totally triumphant. And then lastly, my dear friend, would you be so kind as to recommend to this fledgling podcaster a guest?
1: Uh, I would say uh, Miss Courtney Burns. Yes. She would be great. I mean, both both professionally and personally. Just just a lovely person and very bright and very talented.
0: Scotty, I am constantly in awe of your ability to manage all of these different projects. You are, and I know you hate compliments, but here's one: you are a bona fide visionary. It's been and it will continue to be such an object of inspiration for me to watch your visions manifest. And I am a total fanboy. I love the way you work. And I'm really grateful that you were able to make some time for me amidst your many interesting projects, most of which I don't understand, but all of which, nevertheless, I care about. I love you like your brother. I miss you. And I can't wait to see you soon. Thanks for being on the show, buddy. Thank you, buddy. I love you, too. Bye. Bye. What a swell fellow, that Scott Robin. You know, he didn't mention this, but he used to have an office space in the Ravenswood Corridor up in the far north side of Chicago. And his mailing address, like his post box, was the Internet, care of Scott Robin. And it was just a little tongue-in-cheek joke, but I think he's being humble. I'm reasonably certain that he legit runs the Internet. Like, the whole thing. I love that guy like the brother I never had. Huh, I wonder if my brother's listening. Alright kids, subscribe, leave a like, offer a comment, and if you like what you hear, share it with the people you love. I'll catch you next time.